on the property experience, our hosts Zarko Jokic and Anna Porter will take you behind the curtain of the property market Australia-wide. Welcome to the Property Experience Podcast. Today I have Cameron Beattie from Diamond Finance joining us and Steve Police from Suburbanite. Uh, we all know Steve, our commercial guru over at Suburbanite, buying commercial properties all the time. Welcome. Thank you. And Cameron, one of our uh, new guests, tell me a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me, Anna. Steve, good to see you again. Um, I'm a commercial slash residential mortgage broker. I've been in the industry for around five years now. Uh, started uh, from leaving the big four banks. So I worked with Westpac originally for seven years in their commercial space. Then moved to CBA for a further eight years or so, um, working in various roles from running my own senior portfolio from a relationship management perspective to managing a team of up to seven business bankers. Moved from there to ANZ where I was a senior relationship manager for another 12 months um, and then decided to become a, a mortgage broker. Fantastic. Mm. Sounds like you've got a lot of experience behind yeah. you in all different areas. So today I want to talk to you about getting behind the curtain of commercial loans and what your residential mortgage broker won't or can't tell you. Now you work across both commercial and residential, my understanding. Most definitely, yeah. Excellent. So you'll be able to tell us all the different nuances and, and why a commercial loan is quite different to a residential loan. So um, let's kick off with what exactly is a commercial broker and how does that actually differ from a residential broker? Yeah, for sure. Uh, listen, in my opinion, a commercial broker is someone who really understands businesses, um, uh, also the nuances of it, the cash flow cycles, the financials, uh, the future needs analysis of the individuals, and obviously someone who can assist the client with purchasing commercial properties or loans for commercial use. Uh, that, that's a big differential for me. Um, a broker who knows how to utilise lenders' commercial products which a normal resident, residential broker wouldn't really have an understanding of yeah. or any knowledge of um, and if, if they're not involved with commercial lending. Okay, and I'm going to ask you more about those products in a sure. second. Uh, but Steve, you've dealt with a lot of clients that have bought commercial property predominantly. You've obviously dealt with some residential as well over the years and you've dealt with resident commercial brokers. Uh, what can go wrong when a, a, someone buying a commercial property goes to a residential mortgage broker and, and works through that process and doesn't have that experience. Have you seen that happen from time to time? All the time, because people are always going to have a relationship with a broker and that's going to be their first go-to contact. Um, the residential broker is rarely going to say, this is outside my realm of expertise and, and push <laughs> them onto something away business. <laughs> they'll probably just go to the big four and they'll see what they can do. But as Cameron will tell you, there's a lot of other lenders out there. There's commercial lending lenders as well, so mm -hmm. ones that they won't even have access to on their books. So, but um, as you mentioned, you need to understand the businesses, the leases, how it all works. It is not as simple as just having a pre-approval as well. So different types of commercial properties will be treated differently, different lease terms, different postcodes. Um, so there's a lot more to it. Um, most of the time, the residential brokers fumble about with it and they stuff it up. So do you usually find your clients come to you, Steve, with a pre-approval when it's commercial or without a pre-approval? Because I know in residential, I won't even go looking for a house for a client unless they've got a pre-approval because it wastes my time, their time, the agent's time, and it ends up turning shit. No, so <laughs> I'll be honest, 99% of the time, they haven't even spoken with a commercial broker. They'll sometimes have a residential pre-approval and think that's their buying capacity for a commercial, which is just completely false. Yeah, and, and I will come to you in a minute about, about some of those differences, Cameron. Um, so what, what do you want the client to have when they come to you for a commercial property? What should they have, in your opinion? 
if it's a first touching like the touching point with me just to discuss commercial property, most of the time it's actually better to come to me without even speaking with a broker at all, and I can point them in the direction of someone like Cameron, which I've done hundreds of times, um, because then they can really analyse what they're after and see if the commercial is even right for them in terms of borrowing. They might not have the capacity or it might not be right for them long term. So it's that conversation, it's having an understanding of what they can borrow, what that's going to look like, make sure the capacity's there, but it may not be approvable. Yeah, correct. You can get some, I'll let Cameron explain later, but you can get pre-approvals in principle, but it's not a hard, firm document. Like right, and then you'll make sure they're covered in the purchase process to have time for that finance, due diligence, etc. Yeah, so I'll always make sure, unless you're buying an auction or something like that, we have to get certain, but there's a finance clause in the contract just to make sure you're not going to lose any money that way. Okay, good to know. Can I just touch on one thing? That Steve I'm turning to you next. Go for it. I think something is very important. What Steve said first. I mean, approaching a residential broker for a commercial loan. It's a, a lot of the times I see a lot of hardship that clients go through unnecessarily because they'll go to a residential broker, accepting, expecting that it's the same process applying for a commercial loan that it is for a residential loan. When that residential loan residential broker then goes to a commercial lender, it's almost like they're throwing things at a wall, just seeing what will stick. And that can really damage the client's application process because it's almost like credit officers can't unsee how the deal's been presented. So clients need to be very specific and make sure that they're presenting the deal in the right light. Um, addressing not only the strengths but the weaknesses as well and how you can overcome them. It's very, very important because you only get one opportunity to make a first impression with a, with a credit officer and that can really have a big impact on the end result as to whether or not the loan's going to get approved or it's going to be declined. It's a lot harder for them to know exactly what they're going to buy as well. And they can't just say, oh, I'm looking to buy a, a three-bedroom house in this suburb. It's because it's going to depend on what comes up. There's actually a lot less stock. So if you're trying to buy a retail, that could be anywhere. It could be in a regional town, it could be in the capital city, and the lenders are going to treat that differently. Yeah, and, and as I know, having been a valuer for 10 years before I went into investment, lenders will take things as security and won't take other things as security. So, you know, you've got to be able to navigate that process at the right time as well and, and that sort of thing. So um, so that leads me to my next, my next question. I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty about these loans, and I want to touch firstly on loan-to-value ratios. Sure. So... For anyone listening, a loan-to-value ratio is the percentage of loan you can borrow against the value of a property. So if it's a million-dollar property and you've got a 70% loan-to-value ratio, LVR, you can borrow $700,000 against that or some version of that. When it comes to commercial versus residential, how do they differ? Good question, good question. There's there's quite a gap in the market from lender to lender, and this is, again, where it helps having a, a commercial broker be able to navigate these lenders for you. Uh, most of the big banks will have comfort around a 65% LVR. Yep. But again, there are certainly lenders out there at the moment that are doing 80% for commercial property as well. Right. Whereas so residential, you could potentially get up to 95 97%. 97, 98%, yeah. that's right, yeah. So people need to be able to look at where they're getting that deposit power from then, Correct. don't they? exactly right. So where would that typically come from? Uh, additional security or cash. So using their home as, as leverage, equity Correct. and things like that. Exactly right. So yeah. there's opportunities to use residential property as security, as additional security, um, or cash from, obviously, cash reserves. Okay. Now, loan types, products. What are some of the big differences between my 30-year my residential mm -hmm. mortgage on my 2-point-something percent interest rate? Yes, versus something that you could talk to me about for commercial. So I'm coming to you and I want to buy, what do I want to buy, Steve? You're my guru. What am Let's I buying? Let's just say a $1.2 million <laughs> warehouse in Adelaide. 
Excellent. Sure. Are there many of them? Adelaide's pretty cheap. No, <laughs> yeah, $2 million warehouse in Adelaide. We love Adelaide. Yeah. Well, what sort of loan am I talking about? Why is it different? Okay, so for this, I generally break up my commercial clients between uh, sort of two categories. Borrowing's over a million dollars, borrowing's under a million dollars. Is it a $900,000 warehouse sure. now? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll negotiate very hard. That's right. So basically, I mean, when you're looking at under a million dollars, a lot of banks, especially the big four, have their own offering for that sort of segment where it's more of a traditional uh, set and forget loan where you're doing it from 15 to 30 year loan terms. Uh, similarly, again, there are some lenders out there that will do a 30-year loan term, 80% LVR, which is pretty much in line with a residential investment property loan. Um, again, those can still be at relatively cheap rates, around the 2.9%, 3.1%. So, again, still relatively in line with residential investment. Because right. we hear all the time from clients that they looked at getting a commercial loan and the interest rate was 5 or 6 or 7%. So yeah. obviously they're not talking to the right people there. Exactly right. It's a bit of a misnomer, you know, where, where, where commercial rates are a lot higher. Well, effectively now especially where rates are at an all-time low, mm. we're definitely seeing a lot more of a competitive market in the commercial space. And again, that's why it's so important that you have um, some really good advisors around you in helping you navigate this sort of... Uh, platform as to, to where's going to be best for an individual's uh, property purchase. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the rates will actually change depending on your buying structure as well. Like obviously a self-managed super fund has a different rate exactly for personal right. versus exactly. company. And I even believe um, different states and postcodes potentially have. So if a bank wants to leverage more in a certain state, they'll have a lower interest rate. Definitely. I mean, you, you've got the opportunity. It, it can be very property specific. Um, and also client-specific, understanding what the risk rating is uh, for, the, for the lender. Once you get over the million-dollar mark, that's where it becomes a little bit more complicated, where clients become a little bit more uh, risk-rated, where clients are, where banks are looking at the last two years' financials, trends in their um, ratios. But again, in saying that, for the right risk-rated clients, for transactions over a million dollars, we can sometimes see rates sort of at owner-occupied rates. For residential owner residential owner occupied rates and then one point nine percent for the right clients. Okay, and Steve, I've heard you talk about things like I think it was lease loans and all different types of structures. Talk me through some of that, Cameron. What are yeah. these different types of loans? So again, there's a lot of opportunity out there in the commercial space, especially when looking at commercial security. Got opportunities borrowing funds within your self-managed super fund, which again the normal residential broker wouldn't really have an understanding of. But that's a great tool for allowing people to invest in property within their self-managed super fund for either residential or commercial use. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great tool to help people grow their wealth for the long term as well. Uh, you've got other opportunities of things like lease stock loans, where banks are simply lending on the proposed asset itself. They don't look at anything outside of that property. They look at the strength of the tenant, the quality of the lease in regards to the outgoings, the income, any specific requirements, and just lend based on the return from the property itself. What that will generally mean is just because of the nature of the application process, your LVR will generally drop. So that will come down to probably around the 60 and 65% mark, mm -hmm. just because that's generally where that that level point is of where the, the, 
property can be self-sufficient from its own rental income. Right, right. What's the term of those loans? How long are they? What are the rates like? Again, it varies from lender to lender, but you can get some lenders that will go up to 15 years based yep. on those uh, terms, but other lenders as well will generally base the loan term on the remaining term of the lease right. and so expect the option to be taken up before the, the facility is renewed. This is where Steve would come in handy to be able to look at securing the longest lease terms with the strength behind that application 100%. to be able to put that up in the right way. Exactly. exactly. And then they'll look at the lease options that are coming in the future as well. They'll, they'll basically do a business analysis. They'll, they'll look at the tenant, how strong they are, um, and just look at it long term. So I'm a business owner, for example, this is the scenario. I've had a bit of a tough year from COVID, but I still want to invest in property. You know, revenue's back on track. I'm fairly comfortable, but I probably don't have the lending capacity I might have had a year ago because I've gone through JobKeeper or I've had some subsidies coming and going in and out of my business or, or six months of just shit revenue, let's be honest. Um, that sort of lending structure might be the sort of thing that could keep me investing if I've got the equity to utilise because I can rely on the property as opposed to my own financial situation. Spot on. Exactly right. Okay, so 2021, people should be looking at these sort of loan structures if they want to continue to invest. Even, even if it's just an investor with a large residential portfolio and they're starting to hit a bit of a glass ceiling in terms mm. of the lending, it's, it's an familiar. option you can look at. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very familiar. I don't think the banks like me like they used to. Um, so we hear about commercial rates being higher, um, which we're now learning is a, can be a little bit of a myth. They're going to be a bit higher but not significantly higher. Um, I see this scenario quite often where... Um, someone will go draw down a lot of equity against a residential property, so they'll pull heaps of cash down off a residential property to have equity in and basically use that as a lump sum to purchase something commercial, right? So yes. they might pull five or 600 grand off residential. Effectively, they've, they've got a residential loan structure. Is that something people should be doing? Is that the best structure for them? What can go right or wrong in that scenario? Uh, it really comes down to the individual and understanding what the individual's needs are. That That's really what I can say there. I mean, it, it's... It's a means to an end. It's a, if if that's the best way of fulfilling the client's requirements, then there's nothing wrong with using equity in residential property to assist in the purchase of a commercial property. It's just what are the implications of that going to be for that individual client down the track? Is there something else that they can be using in instead of the equity from their residential property? Um, do they need to reserve that equity in their residential property for something four or five years down the track? It's a lot of money to pull out. If Most you definitely. Use it. Especially if you want to renovate in two years, exactly you may not be able right. to. If it's your owner-occupied property as well, do you want to get that mixed up in the business or do you want to keep the two transactions completely separate? So that puts risk over your residential Most property. Definitely. So something goes wrong with your investment portfolio, something goes wrong with your revenue, whatever that could look like, your life happens, um, you then could lose your own home. So we often talk to people about strategy one of the things we like to create is the opportunity for them to lift all their loans off their primary place of residence as Agreed. soon as they can. Agreed. You know, it's not necessarily a tax advice piece. There are some mm. tax things around that. But it's just about if something goes wrong, if you don't have lending over your own home, it becomes a bit of a safe haven that the banks can't take as easily as if you've got lending sitting there. Correct. It's worth speaking with experts. So you, you chat with the broker, you chat with your accountant, you chat with your financial advisor, and you make sure you cover it and you stress test it. You mm. always, always check what you can handle in the worst case scenario. Mm. Talk to me about stress testing, Steve. What are some of the things that you look at when you stress test for clients? So with, with commercial, it's a little bit different. So because the vacancy periods are longer in the short term, so you might lose your tenant and have a vacant property for six months, um, depending on what and where we buy, um, my general rule of thumb is while you've got a tenant, have 12 months worth of interest repayments for the loan. 
as well as the outgoings. So if your tenant ever does leave, um, you're covered. But again, it's going to depend on the type of property. If we're buying regional, we might make that number a little bit longer. Um, but I, I'll always add a 2 to 3% extra interest rates on all my properties and you see how that falls out in terms of cash flow and can I manage it and for how long and then make the decision from there. But it's going to come down to the individual as well. So someone with a secure job like a, a teacher or a doctor, for instance, um, they don't need as much kind of buffer as someone who's in a really volatile career or works for themselves and things like that uh, because they're always going to have a job. Um, if you're a mum and dad client and you've got lots of kids and lots of outgoings at home, again, you probably want a larger buffer as well because they're going to have much more things outside in their ordinary life that are going to change. So can that be structured through the lending to have that buffer sitting there? Uh, the, the buffer per se can definitely, depending on equity uh, requirements for the client, as long as they've got the equity available there, generally having those cash reserves funds there is definitely an option and something we can definitely look at. One thing we need to remember is that the, most of the banks, most of all the financial institutions these days are always adding at least around 2% to 2.5% buffer interest rates when they assess your application anyway to allow for these stress tests uh, in the event that interest rates do rise in the future that you can still service your debt. Obviously, the last thing that banks want to do is put you into a property that you can't afford. Well, they don't want to do it since they're all commissioned. Maybe exactly before. right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I get in trouble now. That's right. So it's very, very highly scrutinised, actually, at the moment, the, the sensitised interest rates when assessing an application for finance. Yeah, okay. Hey, um, and, and that makes a lot of sense. It really does. Um, Steve, you touched on 12 months vacancy. I can imagine some of our listeners right now had a little bit of a sick feeling in their stomach thinking about that. So I'm coming to you and I'm thinking about buying a residential property or a commercial property so I want to create good revenue. So I'm not looking at a growth asset, I'm looking at a, at a revenue play. And you tell me I could have 12 months vacancy on a commercial property. Will that level out over a five or 10 year period? Will I still make more money if I have to sustain that sort of vacancy? Because in residential I might only get two or three weeks at a time. What, what does that look like from a long term Point of view. So it's going to depend what you actually end up buying, what the kind of vacancy periods are. Well, I, buy what you tell us to, Steve. I, I generally try <laughs> to keep the, the vacancy under six months because that's a good indicator that it's a strong investment. Differing from residential though where you might have two or three weeks vacancy, that might happen every one or two years. Mm -hmm. Whereas with a commercial, like if you buy say an industrial warehouse, the typical tenancy for something like that is seven to 15 years. So if every eight or nine years you're seeing six to 12 months vacancy, your net position isn't actually that much different. It just feels like it's a lot more because it's in one go. Yeah. So it's just and you'll also be achieving a higher revenue over this period and there's usually generally less on costs because, you know, residential, I think I got an email yesterday, the toilet's blocked in this one and the deck, someone broke a thing on the deck the other day and someone wants a tree cut down and, you know, the list is endless. You don't get that as much in commercial. So your revenue position, what you your net position, generally, if you structure right into the right property, should be higher for that period yeah, as well. Your yeah, cash flow should be much higher, assuming you're buying a better net yielding asset. Yeah, um, but so not can... in Sydney because, you know, I've seen some <laughs> properties trading at 2% in Sydney, which I can do better for residential for you, by the way. One one point to note is the commercial net, the net yields, not gross yields. So even a 2% net yield is equivalent to about a 5% gross yield on a residential. Mm. So it's, it's like for like, but um, you, you generally I've seen some forests in the twos. It's disgusting. Ooh, yeah, it's, it's, it depends special. what you buy. Some, <laughs> some people are postcode driven. They live. They want to buy where they live, or they get carried away. 
But that, that also happens residential. You go to an auction and stuff will sell half a million higher than what you expected. And it's like, what is going on? Yeah. I think one of the good things about commercial property too is the fact that in, in the event that a tenant breaks a lease, you've got the comfort of having a security deposit bond for generally three to six months. So that can help you get through that time to fill that vacancy as well. Yeah. You, you can even get personal guarantees sometimes. Correct. Sometimes the owner of the business will put their house up as collateral. Mm, which is exactly what my solicitor tells me not to do every time I sign a lease. Um, so I want to. This is the value in me asking this question. I want to talk about suitable security. So for our listeners out there that have no idea what I mean, it's the it's the type of property the bank will take to secure against the loan. And there's some criteria around this, and there can be some hits and misses. So I know in the residential sector. There's certain postcodes banks don't like to lend in or lend higher loan-to-value ratios, some regional hubs and outlying areas. There's been times where we've seen, you know, we don't buy in, in, in traditionally we don't buy in areas like, say, Ipswich or, you know, outlying areas of, you know, Toowoomba and those sort of areas are for residential. But when banks, sometimes it's even just that they're over-leveraged in a postcode, they don't want to have too many more properties there. We've seen them turn the tap off on lending in some of those areas we've heard through, through the grapevine. Because um, it's a smaller economy, they have high percentage of properties there, it just puts them at risk. Um, you know, we know things like properties in flood zones can be a red flag for, for lenders. If they're in high-risk flood zones, they may not see it as super security, et cetera, et cetera. What do you see in the commercial space? If you're out there looking to buy a commercial property, and both of you could potentially answer this, I might start with you though, Cameron, what are some of the things that you've seen banks pick up as being not maybe suitable security or anything they might particularly like when it comes to the property itself? What, what we're seeing at the moment is, due to the industry, the whole retail segment, segment at the moment it, it is very tough. So a retail shop front, where, you know, five years ago you, used, you might used to be able to get 70, 75 or 80, even an 80% lend, they're dropping now to 65% because of the way that the industry is at the moment and the turmoil it's going through with either everyone moving to online shopping. Yeah, and th that's a really good point. People mm. are blaming COVID for this. You can't blame COVID for everything. This was happening before COVID uh, because of the disruption of online, you know, bricks and mortars not as strong. Amazon. Yeah, know, it's a whole new world we're in. And that's not going to stop because of COVID. That's only going to accelerate. Agreed. But again, you get the flip side of that where you've got a lot of uh, warehouses or industrial units that are being used for these parcel packages mm -hmm. as storage hubs um, in the eastern suburbs where they used to be frowned upon a few years ago. Now they're, they're in such demand that if someone moves out of them, someone's in there straight away. Yeah. The vacancy levels are tiny. They now are leveraged at higher um, percentages than, than these retail shop fronts. Um, but very similar to the, the, the residential side of things. It ultimately, if you want to get the maximum LVR out of a property, it's going to have to be in the capital city. Yeah. It's going to be in a metro area where there is demand for those sorts of properties. If you're expecting high-level LVRs, you can't go to a regional property where there's just simply not going to be the same demand out there for a tenant than if you would from a metro position. Nice. But postcode restrictions definitely are very similar. Uh, we see that a lot. Uh, ultimately, if you want the higher LVRs, it has to be in the metro area where there's a demand for it. So the more you sense. reduce the bank's risk factors in all the different sectors, the more you reduce potentially your risk factors, Spot. the more they like it as a, a clean deal. Exactly right. So obviously, the further outside of the metro you go, the lower you should expect a, yeah. an LVR to be. And what we've found, you know, throughout our years is often the bank doesn't find, doesn't advise you of this sort of stuff until you put the property up. You've, you know, the, the buyer, maybe your investor, maybe spending six, 12 months looking for the property. They finally find the deal, they negotiate it, they do their due diligence, they send it to the broker and the bank says, 
no. Or yes, but we're only lending you this much and it doesn't work anymore. Seen so often. Yeah. So often. So they, they go to all these efforts, secure the property, and then realise they can't even do the transaction. Yeah. So again, that's why you need a team of professionals around you to be able to sort this out. Yeah. Up front well, us having been values for a long time, we, we're very across what they will and won't take. So we save people that heartache. What about you, Steve? What have you seen in this space? It's, it's, it depends what you're buying. So one of the things I'll get Cameron to touch on after this is how lenders treat a vacant property versus a tenanted property. So that, that's a big one as well. And then even the types of properties. So like a freestanding building may be treated differently to a tenanted uh, body corporate building, for instance. But again, it's, it's going to be what it is, where it is, what its purpose is, how strong the lease is, what the vacancy rates are in the area, just how in demand it is. Uh, but the fundamentals still apply. Much much like residential, you don't go out and buy a warehouse in a mining town. Because <laughs> really? <laughs> Can't imagine why. But, well, you, you say that, but I get clients that say, oh, I found this property, it's on a 12% net yield. And I go, yeah, for about three months, and then it's going to be on 0%. Um, so it just you, you follow the fundamentals and you, you generally be okay. Yeah. So I'm going to throw you, Cameron. Talk to me about the vacant versus leased. How, how do the lenders approach this? Commercial is very, very different to the residential side of things. So residential, if you've got a vacant property, most lenders will be comfortable to, to work off projected income. In the commercial space, it's more focused on who is the tenant at the moment. Is there a lease? If there's no lease on the property, then how are you going to repay that loan from day one? Mm. So more often than not, no projected income will be taken into consideration and you'll have to work off just the existing income outside of that property to be able to show servicing for that acquisition. So at its core, it's probably better to get a leased property in most circumstances unless most you definitely. want to own or occupy it and then you put your own lease over it, which is often a super sort of super fun style strategy. Correct. Um, but looking for that leased property, is there a price differential then between a leased property and a vacant property, do you find, Steve? It, it depends where you're buying. Um, most of the time, a tenant property will go for a little bit more, but there are some suburbs and areas where vacant properties actually go for more. So there's more sole traders and businesses that want to jump in on that space, so it actually pushes prices up. So they buy it for their own personal right. use. So, so there's, there's more businesses that want it as opposed to investors, and then that pushes it up as well. But right. on average, a tenant property will sell for generally 15 to 25% more. It's a fair difference. And, yeah, that, that, I mean, that's a fair call. But I think another thing you have to consider, especially at the upper end of the market for commercial properties, the value of a property will actually decrease as the leases expire. So depending on how long is left on the term of the lease, that will decrease the value of the, the property as well. As, it, as the, the lease remaining term decreases, the value of the property will decrease from an investor perspective yeah. because ultimately you're potentially limiting your return on that property for that for that limited term. But, but as Cameron said, uh, if you're buying a vacant property and you need to buy something on, say, a 65% LVR, that's a lot more cash you need to buy to actually be able to buy that property so there's a lot more skill in the game. Whereas if you get the same property, yes, you might pay 10 or 15% more, but you're putting in half the deposit you would have if you got the 65% LVR. Yeah, and, and obviously knowing those areas, someone like yourself who knows those areas where you may actually pay less for a leased property, um, as a buyer, that can be a really good way to, to approach it and get a good buy if that's really what you're looking for is getting that really good buying power potentially. Yeah, it shows there's demand for the area, but generally what comes with that is a lower net yield as well. So so if there's more, more business already there, that, that area is already in demand. So yeah. instead of buying a 6% or 7% net yielding tenanted property, you might be buying that at 5%. So it's very hard to make the numbers work. And, and yield is obviously... Um, 
a mechanism of risk. So the lower the risk, the lower the yield, vice versa. You're going to see those things work closer to one another. Not, not always. That's a little bit of a blanket statement. Like, like you said, in Sydney, there's some, there's some, re- there's some really <laughs> low-yielding low properties. I wouldn't say they're going to grow more or yeah. have a better net result over something that may be 5% net yield. Yeah. So it, it's, again... But it may not talk to growth. It could talk to things like uh, vacancies between yeah, demand exactly and the market, right. all that, all those sort of things. And obviously, there's a, a quite a number of things to assess. Yeah, exactly right. But you can look on the flip side. You can try to buy a tenanted property that's really in demand by the own occupiers in the area who want to buy it because then you can potentially look at selling in five, ten years and get a much better price. Yeah. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So, um, Cameron, what do you think some of the biggest challenges will be for investors, especially in the commercial sector in 2021? I definitely think COVID's obviously going to have an impact coming 2021. Um, earlier I mentioned the retail segment as well. I think they're going to be two major factors uh, flowing through for this year um, in the industry and the commercial space. From an investor perspective, I'd be wanting to make sure again that, that you partner up with the right specialists uh, to ensure that you're getting the right due diligence review of the property that you're looking at, as well as partnering up with obviously a good accountant, good solicitor conveyancer, obviously a good mortgage broker to try and navigate that market for you. Yeah, that's great advice. Steve, we've seen in years gone by that someone could go out and buy a property themselves and potentially the market could make up for their mistakes or or shortfalls in in having information around it, pay a bit too much, the market's going strong, it gets, you know, worked out in the wash pretty quickly. Do you think that's the case over the next couple of years? How do you think, you know, people, if they make a property mistake in the next 12 months because they don't have the right team around them, what potentially could that look like at the moment? Are we in tough of times? We are in certain sectors. So depending, I think something like an industrial, that'll soften the blow if you make a bit of a mistake because I can see some growth there. Um, much much like residential. If you buy a property at the top of the market and it drops, you're going to lose money. But if you keep that long-term mindset um, and there's a good tenant in place and there's demand for tenancy, so you keep that tenancy long-term, if it's a positive cash flow property, you can actually buy those waves. Um, we're assuming life doesn't happen you don't get divorced you don't have to change jobs you don't suddenly have not a tenant and not a job at the same time you don't move interstate you don't like all these things as as we mentioned you've got to stress test your portfolio and things like that come into play yeah and is that something you do for clients that stress testing you can run those numbers and really give them that sort of information yeah so that my first initial call with a client the first half hour we'll speak about their personal circumstances so that that's working out exactly where they see themselves in five ten years time and then make a guy of that. Like most of the clients come to me and they say, I want a commercial, and I'd say 50% of them actually talk them out of it. Mm. So they say, This is not right for you yet. You don't have a good base portfolio, or you're still young and not enough income. So it'll be case by case. It's, an 18 year old's going to be treated completely different to a 65 year old. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Cameron, as a broker, you would see lots of different property strategies, I would imagine. You might have used some of them yourself over the years. You know, we hear things like rent vesting and, um, you know, looking at in the residential space and buying and selling and flipping and holding and all these great buzzwords. Mm. What have you seen works well in the commercial space as a strategy or what doesn't work? Have you seen any strategies that you think just fall short? Uh, listen, I'm a, I'm a real big believer in understanding the individual circumstances and what they want to achieve from, a, from an investment uh, portfolio. I'm a big believer in a balanced portfolio. There's a good opportunity to mix residential with commercial from an investor perspective because I think they they one offers one that the other can't. And I think commercial it, it is a very good way to open up your door to higher returns and higher yields. 
if you're selecting the right properties, which can work well with your consistent approach from the residential side. So diversification is a real I think diversification generally is a good idea from an investment point of view. And going back to what Steve said earlier, it's probably not something you're going to speak to a 16 or 17 year old about. You want probably more of a mature investor yeah. that is prepared to um, to have the opportunity to, to have that diversified portfolio. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got a fairly um, solid residential portfolio. Yeah. I've done a few you know, projects and things myself over the time, it's got a fair bit of experience. But I don't have any commercial in my portfolio. It's been something that I've been talking about and thinking about for about 18 months, maybe even a touch longer. Um, but spending a lot of time with Steve and having these sort of conversations mm. is making me think it's it's time to really look at diversifying my own portfolio. And it, you know, commercial is a really great option. Mm. So something that you know, if you're not exposed to it every day, it tends to fall to the back burner a bit. And you know, having the right people around you to, to get it is a big one. One one thing to keep in mind when you're buying a commercial is think long term as well. So a lot of people like. I see a lot of banks coming on the market at the moment. People are like, oh, this is a really high high net yield, but how many people walk into banks anymore? Mm-hmm. So you might end up with a heritage listed freestanding building that you can't do anything with. <laughs> Love heritage listed. The, the, other one, so I, much trouble. Well, the <laughs> one I come across all the time is petrol stations. And then I ask my client, I say, well, do you think there's going to be petrol stations in 30 years? And most of them say no. So I said, cool, we need to make our money then prior to then if you're going to buy this asset. It's such a perfect example of, of surrounding yourself by the right advisors instead. But knowing you for as long as I have, I think that it's one thing I can speak very highly that, that you do go through these things with your clients and give them the opportunity to think twice. And not only that, I, I, I know that you're, you're happy to say, well, have you thought about this? Instead of just going with what the client wants, and which is nine times out of ten the easy street that you can take. Uh, it makes a lot more sense to, to be able to have an open conversation, almost like all oh, it, it is an, as an advisory role. And that's how I see myself, just as much as a client pays for a solicitor or for um, an accountant. I, I consider myself another arm of a trusted advisor, as should someone like yourself, where where you're adding value to, um, to a client's portfolio. Absolutely. Mm. I want to um, actually touch on that with you, Steve. You talked about... Um, we touched on petrol stations. So we were talking about what strategies work and what strategies don't work. And obviously petrol stations is a whole asset class in its own right, probably a little bit different to most sort of commercial investments that the average Joe would get into. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they indifferent? What are your thoughts on that? Because I've actually had an unprecedented amount of inquiry about petrol stations in the last 12 months. Um, and it's a very niche sector. Other than whether they'll be around or not, what, what are they yield like? What are the risks? Why would someone think about a petrol station or why shouldn't they? It depends when you bought it and what you're buying and where you're buying. Um, you can get some high yields. So there's some on the regional areas, you're talking 9 10% net yields, but you need to work out what time frame you're going to make that money. So if you're only going to make money for 10 years, maybe buying something at an 8% yield that's going to make money for an extra 10 years is better for your bottom line. Um, they come with their own risks, obviously, as well. A lot of people buy them thinking they're getting this freestanding site. Um, just environmentally, there's a lot of red tape you've got to get through to be able to develop on that in the future. So if it ever goes vacant or shuts down, you're sitting there on an unusable parcel of land. I've seen that firsthand. A friend of mine who uh, works for a big development firm, um, I'm not going to name any names on either side of this story just so no one gets sued today, but um, they have a site uh, that was a petrol station. They were assured it was all cleaned up. And, you know, the responsibility technically falls with the tenant, which was a household brand name petrol company. Um, they are meant to remediate if there's any issues. There, there was some leakage. There were some issues in the tanks deep in the ground, which no one knew about until they started digging for this, for this project. 
um, went back to this household brand name and said, you need to remediate, that's your legal obligation. Technically it is. And they said, well, I mean, we will. We're not going to say no because we're a big brand. We wouldn't want to say no. But by the time we get our team to do this paperwork and do that process and go through this journey and do that, it'll take us three years. And you've got a DA approved that I'm pretty sure you want to get onto right now and you're paying interest on. So, you know, decide which way you want to go with it because it is a two- to three-year process for us. Of course, as a developer, they couldn't just sit there with an unusable site for two to three years. Um, so they either had the choice to then litigate against them to make it happen quicker. Let's be honest, that's not going to happen quicker or just go and fix it themselves. And it was a huge financial investment to go and do that. So when people come to me and say, oh, but the tenant has to fix it if they contaminate, it's like, well, it doesn't always work that easily. It's not always that straightforward. And then if you've on-sold it, you're like the piggy in the middle between the new owner who might be a developer, the old tenant that you had who might be a big brand service station. You're sitting in the middle of these two litigious people wanting to try and make you fix it. It can drag on for years mm. as well. It's not a short thing. Um, one, one of the reasons people like them is they think it's an essential service. Everyone drives a car, they need petrol, but that doesn't mean it's a stable business. There's mm. plenty of petrol stations that close down. Some of the other buzzwords I always get are medical or mm. childcare. People love those. Plenty of childcare and medical centres have shut down. Mm. So just because it's in that business doesn't mean it's actually a successful business. And that's, that's part of the due diligence when you look at it as well. So not only do you look at their financials, if you can get a hold of them, and their rental ledgers, you do a bit of competition analysis. Mm. What happens if you buy a petrol station and... One of the big conglomerates puts a petrol station 50 metres down the road ahead of it and then everyone drives into that one and then their business halves. It's, a, yeah, it's such a big thing, especially with petrol stations. If you, well, Who the tenant is, is it going to be an independent petrol station? Is it going to be one of the big you know, Shell, Mobile, or Airpol now, I think that. But um, it, depending on who the tenant is will also affect the credit application as well. Yeah, and we see that in, in any sort of investing. Um, it's a, it's What's your alternate use strategy? That's a de-risking process. Mm -hmm. So if you've got something so purpose-built like a petrol station, like a childcare centre, who else is going to use that at the other end if the business fails, if there's not a, if there's too much competition and there's not enough demand when you need to re-let it or resell it? What are you doing with this site? And that's a, that's a big risk to take on for anyone. Um, so we touched on a lot today about the difference between a residential broker and a commercial broker and what the importance is of using the right one for the right things. And you mentioned about what Steve does in his role with commercial um, clients. I want to throw to you um, on that, Steve, just briefly, and I know we're, we're going way over time, but this is so much fun. Um, a residential property investment advisor or buyer's agent versus a commercial buyer's agent or property investment advisor. Now, there's a lot of guys out there that I know quite quite personally, did residential for four or five years and then suddenly just started, oh, I'll buy the odd commercial here, the odd commercial there, and then they tell clients that they're commercial experts, but we all know they've bought a handful of commercial properties in their life. They're self-taught. They haven't got that real day-to-day -day exposure and experience behind it, and they really are, in essence, a residential property investment advisor that dabbles in commercial. Why should someone look at using a commercial buyer's agent for commercial as opposed to someone that's residential and dabbles in commercial or has been self-taught over a 12-month period? What, what do you see the difference there? It's much like any advisor. You want someone who's experienced. They're obviously going to have more knowledge. Um, but like any advisor, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There may be some, some buyer's agents who do residential that are really good at buying commercial and then there might be some commercial buyer's agents who have bought lots of them but they've bought lots of poor ones. Mm -hmm. Similar to residential, there's some buyer's agents that buy off terrible off the plans mm -hmm. and then there's ones that buy quality stock. So it's just about investigating what they've bought in the past, what metrics they use, how experienced they are, how, how many runs they've got on the board, what their client feedback is and more importantly what their results are. Yeah. Like you don't want to go to one who gets you a good net return at the start but then the property's vacant in 6-12 months. 
Yeah, and look, we see things get missed because it is a complex sector. We've had other buyers agents come to our team and say, oh, we're in the process of buying this commercial property for a really important client and we didn't know because it's vacant they have to pay GST and we don't know how to tell the client, can you just help us look at how we could, like, can we negotiate better? What can we do with this deal? And I think, and, you know, they're, they're good buyers agents, residential, great buyers agents, and I think you've just stepped into a minefield. Yeah, there's so many more moving parts with commercial and you might get lucky and fumble around and get an okay deal, but nine times out of ten, you're, you're going to miss something. Yeah. Well, Gareth from our team was um, doing a, a big valuation for an acquisition. It was for a, one of our corporate clients on a big commercial property recently. And he was drawing down the 19 leases for the actual property and then all the leases for ones that had sold around it to see what the real rent was when he was analysing it out. And it was funny, a buyer's agent who's supposedly a commercial expert on our team said to me about that, they said, why would you buy all those leases? Isn't that just an expense you don't need? I thought, wow, wow. Mm. <laughs> kind of do need that information for the client. But anyway, <laughs> all right. Um, anything you want to add before we, we wrap? Oh. Uh, that's it. That's been it for me. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, thank, you. thank you so much, guys, for joining us. This has been a great awesome. one. I think it's something that a lot of people don't know enough about and probably want to know a lot more about. So another episode of The Property Experience, getting some great commercial insights. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all again soon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Property Experience. Stay tuned for more great content.